0: Good morning. morning. Jill, thank you for that very kind and uh, generous introduction. Um, There's some people in this room who know that I'm also a sinner um, who have walked with me and had to confront me. So I, I rejoice in your wonderful introduction, and I'm brought back down to earth at the recollection of the fact that I'm a sinner just like all of us are. A sinner who's grateful for the grace of God. Uh, I bring you greetings from Covenant Fellowship. Uh, We are very interested in what's going on uh, at Redeemer. We love your pastoral team. uh, Over the the summer we have prayed as a pastoral team earnestly for your senior pastor Joel, as he's as he's had to deal with uh, with the injuries and the surgery. We've prayed earnestly for his dad Tim, who we love dearly, uh, who's now a, a member of this church. So wonderful, brother, to hear you read the scriptures this morning. Couldn't resist taking a picture of you behind the pulpit again. <laughs> Would you please open in your Bibles to Exodus, chapter twenty? I really, uh, I really rejoiced uh, this summer as well to see the picture of your interns who are being trained. Uh, I've rejoiced when, at the regional assembly of elders, there are various men present, young men who are pursuing ordination. Uh, the The hand of the Lord is very much on Redeemer, and His grace is here. And Joel mentions you're coming up on your your five-year anniversary, and I was thinking as I was worshiping with you this morning that that this church reminds me very much of Covenant Fellowship at about five years. So I think you have you have a bright future. And we're, we're with you, we're praying for you. Exodus chapter 20, uh, you're in a series on the Ten Commandments. Joel asked me to preach on the Ninth Commandment. And just uh, before I read our text this morning, I just want to point out that, that that the giving of the Ten Commandments, certainly for the people of Israel, was a very frightening thing. Uh, The Lord came down on the mountain. You've heard a sermon on Exodus 19 with thunders and lightning and thick cloud and, and a trumpet blast and the people were trembling. And then after the Ten Commandments are given when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, people were afraid and trembled. So just imagine yourself present there. Thus far all the people have heard from is Moses. Moses says, the Lord says this, the Lord says that. Now the Lord himself speaks to them. And the mountain is shaking. There's thunder and lightning. People were afraid. And someday we will understand why these Ten Commandments are such a big deal. But I think the impression anyone who was present that day would have been left with is that these are the things that provoke the anger of God all these things are are frightening a few things scarier than than a thunderstorm being being outdoors in the midst of it a few things are scarier than an earthquake and so the the whole the whole scene was designed to provoke the fear of the lord and you'll get to that when you get to the verses uh, later on at the end of this chapter so let's read our text this morning Exodus chapter 20, I want to read verse 1, verse 2, and then our text, verse 16. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That is one of the things that provokes the wrath and the anger of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word this morning. I'd like, I'd like to begin today by bringing to your remembrance the story of Naboth's vineyard as told in 1 Kings chapter 21. If you're the intense type, you can go there and follow along and make sure that I'm retelling the story accurately, I believe I am. But rather than read it, I just wanna summarize the story for you. King Ahab, the king of Israel, wanted to acquire Naboth's vineyard. But Naboth, who was a good man, refused to sell it to Ahab at any price. Ahab came and said, I'll give you a better vineyard uh, in exchange for this, or I'll give you you money uh, for this vineyard. But Naboth refused to sell it to Ahab, and that's because Ahab inherited the vineyard from his fathers, and the law forbade the permanent selling of land. So righteous Naboth replied to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. The Lord Lord has forbidden this. Can't do it. Won't do it. Well, Ahab was upset. And he returned to his palace, vexed and sullen. He refused to look at anybody. He turned his face to the wall, and he was depressed. He went to bed that night without eating anything, and when Ahab's wife, Jezebel, asked him, Why are you so depressed? He explained that Naboth refused to sell him his vineyard. And she took up Ahab's offense and replied, Are you not the king? don't you govern Israel? I'll get the vineyard for you. So Jezebel hatched a plan. She sent a letter in Ahab's name and with his seal to the leaders of Naboth's city. A letter which ordered them to call a fast and an assembly. This is going to be a holy assembly for us to deal with serious wrongdoing in the midst of Israel. She she calls, she orders them to call a fast and an assembly, and then have Naboth come up to the front, at which point they were to call forward two false witnesses who would accuse Naboth of cursing God and the king, crimes punishable by death. Well, two false witnesses were found, and they brought their charges forward in the holy assembly, in the presence of everyone. A verdict was rendered and the people took Naboth outside the city and they stoned him to death. And it certainly seems from 2 Kings 9.26 that Naboth's sons perished with their father. Thus ensuring that there were no heirs to claim that vineyard which upon his death became the property of the king. Bearing false witness always harms innocent people and their families. So often, false testimony is made plausible by close association with something that actually happened. Naboth did have a difficult interaction with the king. People witnessed it. It could be verified. We saw them talking. Naboth did invoke the Lord's name. He said, the Lord forbid. People heard him invoke the Lord's name. Naboth did deny the king his request. And the king was likely visibly offended. People observed that. So a very plausible accusation could be framed. He cursed God and the king. But in fact, Naboth never cursed God, and he never cursed the king. And in this respect, when when we read the story of Naboth, we can't help but see in that a, a, a shadow, a shadow of Christ himself. Like Naboth, Christ is the rightful owner of a vineyard given to him by his father, the vineyard of the Lord. And like Naboth, Christ was convicted of blasphemy and executed on the basis of twisted words and false testimony. It was the bearing of false witness that resulted in the execution of our Savior. And you can read about it. Do we have these projected on the screen, brothers? Yes, I think we do. The chief priests... Matthew 26, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. It's astonishing that those whose job it was to teach the law and uphold the law were actively seeking out false witnesses in gross violation of the law. Well, they found two false witnesses who testified that Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That's not what Jesus said. He never said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God. What he said was, destroy this temple of God and in three days I will raise it up. He was not speaking blasphemously against the temple. He was speaking prophetically that henceforward the meeting place between God and man was not going to be a building but the temple of his body destroyed and then raised the third day. Well, when in answer to the high priest's final question, Jesus replied that one day the high priest would see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. The high priest tore his robes in a dramatic display and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they all answered in keeping with the man who was in power. He deserves death. He did not deserve death. They deserved death. He violated no law. They violated the law. Now, now brothers and sisters, falsely accusing someone of of a grievous wrong has always been a way for men and women to get rid of someone. It's always been a way for men and women to get what they want, like a vineyard. It's always been a way for men and women to exact revenge, It's always been a way to neutralize or destroy the influence of an opponent. And false witness has always been an abomination to the Lord, provoking his holy wrath. Proverbs 6, 16 and following, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are An abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue that connects with the ninth commandment, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord. Among brothers. One would think that anyone who knows God and anyone who loves God would be afraid to commit an abomination, afraid to spread false testimony against anyone, afraid to sow discord among the brethren. But not only are many Christians today not afraid to violate the ninth commandment. Many of us today are scarcely able to discern false witnesses around us when they lift up their voices. And that's because we live in a culture which is so saturated with slander, so skilled at cementing public perception of wrongdoing based on unsubstantiated accusations So adept at leveling charges, supported only by a cheering section which already knows that someone is guilty. We live in a culture which is so energized by tantalizing gossip, so delighted with witty slander, so humored at the devastating put down that we don't see it for what it is. It's false witness. Not only do we not see it, we we do not regard it as an abomination, it's a trifle. So the ninth commandment really is medicine for the soul of today's church. So I'd like to proceed by just asking two questions. Uh, What does the ninth commandment call for and what does the ninth commandment forbid? So we'll proceed to answer those two questions. What does the ninth commandment call for? Well, first of all, it calls for utterly truthful speech. When God, through Hosea, accused Israel of unfaithfulness, he repeated five of the ten commandments. He said, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. The word lying is found where one would expect to see false witness. So clearly the ninth commandment has lying in the the broad sense of the word in view. And it calls us to be truthful as God is truthful. God is completely and utterly truthful. Everything he has ever said will stand. Everything he has ever said is utterly the truth. God is not a man that he should lie. Everything he says is absolutely, totally true. And on the one hand, that should bring bring people great fear. If you haven't heeded God's warnings concerning His coming wrath and the prospect of an eternity in hell, you should be afraid. It's absolutely true. And everyone will discover that what he said was absolutely the truth. So on the one hand, his truthfulness should awaken within us a a righteous fear. On the other hand, all of his promises are yes and amen. All of his promises are absolutely, totally true for you, for me. And that should bring us great joy if if you've believed in those promises. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the truth. That's a wonderful truth. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. That's the truth. Hallelujah. That should bring you great joy if you've put your hope and your trust upon those promises. Everything God says is absolutely true. And when you find yourself, as I find myself this morning re-preaching this sermon, resolved to be to, to seek to be as truthful as God is truthful, that's an evidence of grace. It's evidence that you are a new creation. Paul said to the Ephesians, put on the new self, created. After the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new self, the new creation. Therefore, having put away what? Falsehood, let each of you what? Speak the truth with his neighbor. J.I. Packer in his treatment of the ninth commandment reminds his readers that exaggerations and half-truths and misleading silences can all be lies. And we're to put all of that away. And that includes how we speak even when someone has wronged us. If in retelling the story of how we've been wronged, we exaggerate, if we tell half-truths, If we omit from the story ways we know our sin contributed to the problem, then we lie and bear false witness against our neighbor in violation of the ninth commandment. So, what does the ninth commandment require? It requires utterly truthful speech. Second, it requires biblical speech ethics. Subsumed under the ninth commandment, and you'll discover this as you study the Old Testament, is a whole body of biblical ethics concerning the tongue. The Bible teaches everywhere that words have power, that words matter, that words can either be wonderfully life-giving or terribly life-crushing. The Bible teaches us that life and death are in the power of the tongue. And false testimony is just the pinnacle sin in an entire class of sinful speech. As with all the commands, the sin begins in the heart where it must be dealt with first. So the ninth commandment is connected to the idea of making charitable judgments in our heart concerning others, believing the best of others wherever possible, one of the characteristics of love, 1 Corinthians 13. The ninth commandment is also connected to not letting any unwholesome word come out of our mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others. Now, some people object to that scripture. We're only to say what's helpful for building up others. Isn't there a place for strong confrontation, putting somebody in their place, rebuking someone? And there's a sense in which that's true. Yes, Nathan faithfully wounded his friend David with a stinging rebuke from the Lord for David's grievous sins. Paul rebuked Peter for separating himself from the Gentiles out of of ethnic partiality and out of fear of his compatriots. But there's, friends, there's a big difference between words meant to hurt or crush or destroy someone and loving confrontation or gracious polemics meant for their reform or for building them up. So the Ninth Commandment calls for biblical speech ethics. It also calls for a commitment to due process. Where do you get that in the Bible? Well, let me explain it. In the Old Testament, subsumed under the Ninth Commandment was an entire body of law that established principles and rules to check the pervasive human propensity to bear false witness. The Mosaic Law is very specific. Deuteronomy 19. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If an accusation of wrongdoing was made, the witness had to come forward so the matter could be carefully adjudicated. And if in the process of adjudication it was found that a witness had spoken falsely, by the way, this is the basis of the whole idea of cross-examination in our legal system, If a witness was found to have spoken falsely, the penalty which would have fallen on the accused would fall upon them. So people were afraid to get caught bearing false testimony. Witnesses could be examined, which means that there was no room for anonymous testimony. You can't examine a witness if they're anonymous. They're completely shrouded. Well, those principles of of due process found in the Old Testament were carried forward into the New Testament. So that when Paul instructed Timothy concerning accusations against pastors, he said, Do not admit a charge against an elder except what? On the basis of two or three witnesses right out of the Old Testament. Again, multiple witnesses and careful adjudication were required. So let me make a couple points of application here. First, we violate the ninth commandment when we make judgments or pronounce verdicts or demand consequences based upon unadjudicated charges. Justice requires careful deliberation. And that can't happen on the internet. It can't happen on the internet. Second, we violate the ninth commandment routinely and egregiously when we bestow credibility upon anonymous accusers who level serious charges against others while hiding behind a cloak of internet anonymity. Now. I I, I can hear the objections from some quarters. Can't the mechanisms of due process process be manipulated? Absolutely. Isn't that what Jezebel did? Isn't that what the the chief priest did? They can be manipulated, especially by people with power. But we must not abandon due process because it can be manipulated. I'm grateful that we have a judicial system in, in our nation and in our denomination, which, which, uh, w- which seeks to check and restrain false witness, which seeks to administer justice where wrongdoing has occurred, and which enacts measures to restrain the manipulation of due process. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute, our de- denomination has a judicial system, huh? We do. And if you're interested in learning why that's a necessity and who it's designed to serve, which incidentally is you. If you want to know how it works, you can read the Sovereign Grace Book of Church Order, pages 106 to 152. I just happen to have a copy here with me. You can't have this because it's mine and it's marked up. But you can download it free from, from uh, Sovereign Grace. .org, or you can purchase a, a copy on Amazon. I don't think anybody's making any money selling the book of church order. It's a boring read until you need it. So, just to summarize, the ninth commandment requires truthful speech, biblical speech ethics, and due process. All right, so what does this commandment forbid? Well, Exodus 23 expands on the ninth commandment, and it forbids the spreading of false reports. Exodus 23, chapter 1. You shall not spread a false report. Here the commandment is broadened. It's not just about originating a false report. It's about spreading one, Which means that if we don't know, that if we're not certain that a particular report is true, we ought not spread the rumor of it. You shall not spread a false report. So often, especially on social media, people speak as if they know what happened. Now, people speak as if they know what that person was thinking. People speak as if their conjecture... Is established fact. Now, conjecture is a a supposition. It's based on incomplete information. It's reasoned guesswork. And that can be useful tools in an investigation to pursue a line of questioning. It can be a useful tool by those who have jurisdiction. But when we spread an evil report based on conjecture or theory or speculation, when we pronounce someone guilty of wrongs based upon reasoned guesswork, when we tell the world what surely motivated the accused, then we grievously violate the ninth commandment. It's simply wrong. It is a sin, brothers and sisters, to uncharitably ascribe sinful motives to someone's words or actions, and to publish them with an air of certainty as if we had just peered into their hearts. And now we can announce to the world what we saw there. Only God sees the heart. And we have to be very, very careful in judging the motives of others. Stephen Charnock, in his wonderful book The Attributes of God The Existence and the Attributes of God he says to judge the hearts of others is to ambitiously erect a tribunal equal with God's and usurp a judicial power belonging only to the supreme governor of the world it is to pretend to be possessed of the perfection of omniscience Seeing everything, we sin against God's omniscience by censuring the hearts of others. So the ninth commandment forbids; it forbids the spreading of false reports. It also forbids partiality in what we say concerning others. We saw this in the two stories that we considered, the story of Ahab and Jezebel and Naboth's vineyard, the story of, of, of Christ's trial. Exodus 23 highlights three kinds of partiality. First, we must not bend what we say of others to please the wicked who may be in power. Exodus 23:1, you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. We should, we should never spin our story or our testimony in a way that shows partiality to wicked or powerful people like Jezebel and the high priest. You can understand why those false witnesses did it. They didn't want to get in trouble themselves with those guys in power. But it's a sin. It's a sin to bend your testimony in order to favor someone who's in power. Second, we must not bend what we say of others in a way that shows partiality to the accusations of a crowd. That's what happens in mob justice. It's it's cascades, it builds. Exodus 23, verse 2, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Lots of people are saying this, It kind of seems to me like that might be true. I'm going to say it too. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. How much harm has been done when people reinterpret their experiences or retell their own stories through the dark lens of accusations that are coming from a crowd? Well, this is everybody's take. I'm going to tell my story. Angled that way as well. The ninth commandment also here forbids partiality towards, uh, towards. Well, let me let me back up and continue that point. It forbids partiality towards the many. Third, we're forbidden from showing partiality to the powerless and the poor. Now, this this one was surprising to me. It goes on to say, "Nor shall you be partial to the poor man in his lawsuit." That's almost almost counterintuitive, isn't it? We intuitively know that it's wrong to shade testimony in, in favor of the wicked and the powerful. We intuitively know that mob justice, crowd justice is injustice. But we may intuitively want to extend some measure of partiality in what we say of others towards those without power. I'm going to favor the weak in offering my testimony but here we're forbidden from doing so and and that's because people without position and without power can also be tempted to false witness there's a set of temptations that go along with with power there's a set of temptations that 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 come with having no power We're forbidden from bending our testimony towards the weak. So this commandment forbids partiality in what we say of others across the board. It doesn't matter who it is. The truth is the truth, and that's what's critical. And the New Testament agrees in many places. It tells us in Acts 10 and Ephesians 6 that God shows no partiality. It says in James 2.9 that if you show partiality, you're committing a sin. James exhorts the brothers there. He says, brothers, show, show no partiality. Paul exhorts Timothy, do nothing from partiality. So that's the second thing that this commandment forbids. Third, it forbids gossip and slander. I mentioned it before. Gossip and slander are not trifles. They're not trivial sins. When God speaks of those who he gives up to a debased mind, he includes gossipers and slanderers. Romans 129, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Gossip and slander. Slander ought never characterize God's people. Gossip and slander characterizes those who abide under the wrath of God, not those who have been delivered from it through God's mercies on the cross. Leviticus 19, elaborating on the ninth commandment, says, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Speaking of this text, Spurgeon said, Spreading slander emits a threefold poison, for it injures the teller, the hearer, and the person about whom the slander is spread. Whether the report is true or false, We are, by this precept of God's word, forbidden to spread it. The reputations of the Lord's people should be very precious in our sight, and we should consider it shameful to help the devil to dishonor the church in the name of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 11 says, Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secret, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps the thing covered. Now, as soon as I say those words, there's a red flag that comes up for some, for some of you. You know, what? Covering? Covering wrong? So let me, just, let me just lay in a few caveats. Calvin, in his treatment, John Calvin of the Ninth Commandment, makes it clear that it is not gossip or slander to report wrongdoing to the authorities. That's not gossip and slander. It's not gossip or slander to announce a judicial decision. It's not gossip or slander to disclose information to those whose safety depends on being forewarned. But Calvin goes on to say that he who forbids us to defame our neighbor's reputation by falsehood desires us to keep it untarnished insofar as truth will permit. That's beautiful. So we've now covered the things that the ninth commandment calls for, and we've covered the things that the ninth commandment forbids. I found uh, found the the question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism on, on the ninth commandment to be very helpful, and I thought it would be good for us to just say it together, read it together, and then I'd like to pray. What is the aim of the ninth commandment? Let's say it together. That I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are the very devices the devil uses, and they would call down on me God's intense wrath. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. Let's pray together.